Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore the system as a map of our unique potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you'd like to dive deeper into your design, we invite you to check out our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Amaya Blanco Alzola is a 1-4 manifesting generator who began her experiment with human design in 2001 at the age of 23, being a direct student of Ra Uruhu and Alakanan Diaz. She has worked professionally in all areas of the knowledge ever since then, as a teacher and advanced analyst with special emphasis in parenting support and child development. She's also involved with the Feldenkrais Method and Gyrotonic teacher trainings as an orientation toward body awareness through movement. Amaya brings so much depth, humility, honesty, and skill to her work and to our conversation in this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Amaya. We're so happy to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So we've just had the great fortune of being in a training with you, with Alakanan Diaz, and we really enjoyed meeting you and are happy to have you here. Wanted to hear more about your experience. So we'd love to know if you'd like to share how you found human design. I know it's quite a while ago now, though. We'd love to hear a bit of your story if you'd like to share. Sure. It kind of crossed my path, so to say, in 2001. I was actually studying abroad. I got a call from my family. Listen, we found out about human design. You're this, you're that. And I was like, okay, okay, sounds interesting. And it wasn't until the summer that I came home on the break that I actually got to a cassette <laughs> that my father, uh, he had asked Alokanan to do the whole family, actually. And I just sat in my room. I remember I, I listened to it. I was just shocked, to say the least, how this man that I didn't even know could speak about me in these terms. And I was uh, relatively young. I was 23 years old. It was year 2001. So... I was just studying business administration, nothing to do with, you know, with self-knowing yourself or whatever. So there was a sequence of uh, events that just like happened as Alokanan came to my house one day. I I wasn't even there because I I got back to Oxford and he gave an LYD on my father's house, you know, and there he met my brother, Antoine, Antonio, who's like already since then uh, working with, he used to work with Talok, but he used to film Raw, and he used to, well, he's still working at Jovian with uh, all of the IT, developing all of the software and, and stuff. And they got this friendship, no, Alok and, and Antonio. So every time I was coming back from uh, my studies and, you know, coming back home, I was just finding all of these filmings or recordings of Alok or Fra, you know, on the room, you know, on the shelves, you know. So it was just as a natural investigator, I was just like flipping out. (laughs) So it was so natural like this, like just I started digging. So your brother was involved, but it sounds like your father was quite involved as well. Yes, my father met Alok. He was just so impressed with the knowledge that he studied. And, and then he, he also studied with Ra, you know, he, he was doing like events or whatever. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty much implanted in my family. <laughs> well, we have another two members that were like more skeptic. It took my mother 15 years to ask me for a reading. And then she, she, after that, she, she came to all of my classes, you know. What were those early years that first period of time after you found out about it, you had a reading, sounds like there was all of this stuff going on in your family home. Did it take you a while to sort of really sink into it? Did you go slow? Did you dive in? 
I was actually kind of like being dosified by my brother. You know, I was always coming home <laughs> and, and telling like, what's next? What's next? You know, like, uh, he was like, okay, go here. Well, go, go there. You know, so he, he was kind of like dosifying. And it's very beautiful because being a generator, I get a lot of uh, questions throughout the way, you know. As I said, there was this proximity with Alokanand. I remember with uh, Sanata, which is uh, Alokanand's ex-wife, uh, the mother of, of his daughter. Uh, she was staying some days at my at my house, and somehow she knew that I was just into it like this, like on my own. And she asked me, like, you know what Alokanand is doing right now at summer in Girona? No? Why don't you call him? Uh, you've been so involved. Uh, wouldn't you like to like get a bit more serious on this? I was like, uh, why not? So I called Alok, and he told me like, hey, come up here. Just you know, next day I was there, and there it kind of started this ticklingness. Uh, but it was just not pointed towards nothing. Then along the way, I got asked by Viviana, uh, would you like to be an analyst? Uh, by a log, would you like to be a teacher? I was always even insecure about it. Like, like who, me? Uh, I don't know if I'm prepared, you know, I used to say. And they were like, don't worry, it'll, it'll, it'll come, you know? It was beautiful too. Like, uh, I actually met a log and Ram the same day. What an impact, must I say. From then on, I I, I met Ra on, on 2001. From then on, I I didn't meet Ra until 2009. You know, there were like eight years, more or less, dancing with it. And it was in 2009 where there was the event. And I was just living in Palma de Mallorca. And uh, my brother was already in Ibiza working with Ra. I had this great response to go to the event. no. But I didn't have the money to assist to the classes or anything. Even my brother was saying to me, like, he's a 3-6 like, why are you coming? Like, there's nothing for you here. And I was like, uh, well, I don't know. I just want to like, you know, see the ambient and see how. The first day that I came, it was very beautiful. It was even uh, Sarah, Ra's uh, daughter, who was very welcoming. And, and, and she, she's like really, she's a beautiful soul, so to say. And I just got this invitation from Rat. He said, okay, tell your sister to come to the event. She will actually sit with you guys with the IT board and she's going to do me a favor. She's going to take the, you know, the, the classes and all of the, and put them up to the server. So that would be her paying up for the, you know, for the event. So from then on, he had this, I think because of my age, because I was young and he was like kind of wanting to support that. So from 2009, actually, until his death. You know, I got all these invitations to look to go to film in the Cheyenne studios for the perspectives or on the spotlight with Nike Monata to even translate Rai himself into his tours. And it was just like all in a row and unexpected, you know, so it was it just rolled like that. Just flowed, took on a life of its own, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. So who were your major influences? Could you say more about that? Early, did you study mostly with Ra Analog? Or? Yeah, mostly Ra Analog, since it was all of the material that was available. There was this, uh, how do you say, proximity, you know? So, and, and I mean, being myself so tribal and a one four, I really felt like by some, you know, some kindness there. And it wasn't until after that I actually, well, Linda Stone uh, asked me if I wanted to translate Deborah Bergman for the Dream Brave uh, Analyst Specification or PG5, like studying with the whole panel, you know, because it was funny because I was in class, for example, in holistic analysis with all of the, you know, first time students of RAN and they all doubled my age. And I was like, even sometimes say like, wow, I don't even know why am I here, you know, like. 
I have this opportunity. So to say the, the whole international panel, yeah, my main line is Alok and, and Raurahu. It's so sweet. It, it does sound so tribal. Sounds like you were just taken into the fold and mentored and sort of pulled along with the flow. I consider myself lucky, really. I mean, Alok has been such um, a strong influence because he, he's, he's influenced a lot of my perspective in human design. But I mean, he's always facilitated my upbringing in the knowledge. And I appreciate it from Raleigh, even when I translated. I remember he used to ask me before he started, he would ask, are you ready? And I'll go like, uh-huh, because I was so nervous to translate him because I never translated uh, simultaneously to anybody. And I discovered I could because, you know, <laughs> he said, yeah, are you ready? I was like, uh-huh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's, let's go, <laughs> you know. I was so nervous. Actually, before class, before the first time I translated him, I told him, like, I kind of like confessed, like, really, I don't know. I don't know. I've never done this. And he said, he said something like, you're going to define, you know, that phrase. I was just, okay, I'm going to define them. Yeah, I, I felt very much taken into account. I can just only be thankful for that trajectory. Yeah, it sounds like such a, a special circumstance and opportunity to come into it at that young age. I mean, obviously, we can bring it to children kind of earlier these days with parents and all that. But for most of us in, in human design, myself included, a lot of us found it in the later years of life to not only have access, like direct access, like you had to Ra and Alok, but also to have several members of your family and different generations all interested in human design. I'm curious what that was like kind of having that knowledge in the context of the penta and did you see relationships changing or were there shifts that were part of it compared to say the more conventional way of operating in a family yes actually it helped the fact my parents got divorced before the knowledge came in so so we could do this one-to-one -one. i mean it's not like we would live in a penta but we could very much uh, understand each other's nature and <laughs> yeah that helped a lot uh, between us and not only within ourselves. Yeah. It was actually very extreme because there were like three of us very involved and then two of them very, you know, my other brother is a mathematician and a doctor and it's like, wow. And as I said, my mother already saw it, you know, late, but saw it and asked for it. But my other brother, my older brother is still there. He listens to it though. Why should he be involved if he doesn't want to, right? The way we talk to him or whatever, he catches things. He, he listens. He actually listens. So you are a sacral manifesting generator. Mm -hmm. And could you say more about the sacral response? What was your experience of learning about that early on? And then your experience of it now, could you say more? Good question. <laughs> It's not like I got human design and I started like, I don't know, doing sacral uh, exercises or whatever. Or no, It was just, first of all, it was more about learning, about me finding it interesting and not even realizing what it was. You know what I mean? I mean, you see my design, you see that nobody can oblige me easily to do whatever I don't want to. <laughs> and uh, it was just like, for me, it wasn't an event. The, the sacral sounds because I could already, you know, be familiar in a way with it. Like it's not a big deal. It's it's in there. I mean, it's always been there. Right now, like in the present, I have a companion that's a mental projector, and and it's. I mean, I can see mostly in like very crucial uh, 
decisions, uh, how determinant it is uh, when he asked me and how much like I, well, I've gone through a lot of hospitalizations throughout these past seven years, right? And sometimes I will go to a proof, you know, to a test or whatever, like or a pre-test for an operation or whatever. And he would say, are you, you know, <laughs> something like, is it going to be fine? And I would go, uh-uh. And my mind would freak out, like, oh my God, it's not going to go fine. <laughs> so, you know, I said, okay, but my body's saying it's not going to fit. I don't know why is it saying it. And then we would go to the appointment and, you know, and get there and the whole thing will be cancelled. So my body knew that it was, can- was going to be cancelled. I wouldn't know how to decipher why my body say no, it's not today. So I've had so many of those, you know, like in very dramatic times that were like so controversial for my mind and, and for the situation itself. I mean, if, even if I would want to fool myself, because one can fool itself with this, aha, mm-hmm. I've come to, you know, hear that so vivid, there's no way I can just fool myself anymore with that, you know? But I know how to clearly stand with whatever my body says, even if it blows up my mind, because I've got sufficient proof that it's, uh, I don't know why it's going to turn to to be whatever it's meant to be. Yeah, we were just talking to uh, actually our last guest on the podcast, and we got into an interesting conversation about inner authority. And how it almost seems like our relationship with our inner authority is connecting us to time and space beyond what our minds can comprehend. It's almost like it's plugging into some sort of natural source connection, you know, relationship with things as they are. And when the mind comes in and starts trying to interpret a sacral response or the spleen or something like that, it's just going to be, in a way, kind of handicapped. It's not designed to have that type of awareness where something like the purity of a sacral response, how can it know in the future that the appointment's going to be canceled? That's what's really fascinating. And it sounds like you do have a, a relatively clear sense of your sacral response when it's a yes, when it's a no. Well, I'm 21 years into the experience so that gives you enough time to fool enough yourself <laughs> as to, <laughs> and to yeah, contrast like what's experience with what you fool yourself with. So uh, it's a trial and error in that sense. <laughs> but I would say it's uh, tricky, even in my design to, you know, it has taken me so much time and still it fools me sometimes because it's, uh, it's split from my spleen. I, I'm a sacral being. So it's my authority, but I, I have a splenic system connected to the throat, splitted from that. For himself, he's always overriding, you know, the, the movie. So I, I really have to breathe deep <laughs> when it comes to, to important decisions. Not to let my intelligence, in the sense of the, not the acuity that my spleen can gain in any situation, to leave me behind uh, with my sacral asphyxiated because... It doesn't dare, you know, fight with the with the big one, you know. But it's amazing how we have this intelligence, this intelligence, how we are connected with, you know, with life itself, and and we keep rocking the you know the same stuff over and over with the mind, you know, or with the acceleration of the movie. Do you see the splenic awareness as part of your definition working alongside the sacral response? Are they often 
pointing you in the same direction or giving you the, the same type of awareness in terms of whether something's correct or healthy for you? Do you ever see them not saying the same thing or in conflict? I personally don't think they don't say the same thing in the sense that they can only work together. But since the spleen is in a manifesting, is the manifesting side, it's just I can uh, precipitate, I can blow the thing by acting too quick. It's just that. Um, I, I don't think my, my sacral has never contradicted my spleen in the sense of knowing you know, about its availability to this. If I, I know I can contradict myself, though, <laughs> you can see I am contradictory in the same phrase, by not listening to my availability and putting all the, you know, all to the red on the, on the spleen side, on the manifesting side. Sounds like you're pointing to a sort of a timing factor. Sometimes the spleen knows something faster, but energy is not quite ready to move yet. Yeah, not about being aware, but not knowing your place, you know, like not respecting the flow. Well, so then that brings us to your ego. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You've got a beautiful ego. So you've got the 4521 and the 4426 and, and both the 51 and the 40 defined as well. Would you like to share a bit about your sense of the ego? What a joke, huh? <laughs> Plus, you know, it's my son, the 26, and, and um, I have motivation in a sense, you know, talk about laughing for a while with Nero. Yeah. I would say, what do you want to know? <laughs> You're, so your son's in gate 26, first line. Sometimes gate 26 is referred to as the big ego, you know, the egoist. With everything else that you have going on and, and with your ego definition, I mean, this is a, a very powerful will, a very powerful sense of, you could say, uh, certain capacity, I guess, and, and, and a potential confidence that comes with that. How do you experience that? You've pointed a little bit to, you know, the manifest aspect of it with the 4521 and the spleen, but... Yeah, what is your experience of being this powerful ego flying through space? Um, I think I've suffered throughout my infancy. I mean, like uh, when I was little, I've suffered more from uh, amplification from others, you know, that would just get back to me on that ego, you know, like for sure my first steps were insecure, even more insecure than, you know, than the present. So I suffered a lot from more about wanting to hide or, uh, you know, not being able to show this power ego, whatever. And it, it came with age that I started to, you know, taking base. And, and uh, of course, my, my transfer is, uh, you know, leadership power, CC to get on a trip for me. But I'm thankful human design came so soon, so to say, because mm-hmm. uh, it turned that weakness, so to say, into a strong field, observation and, and investigation. Um, I even remember my father when he told me, oh, you're on the cross of rulership, you're a leader, uh, tribal leader. I was like, what? <laughs> like, I don't even dare, uh, you know, propose myself or whatever. And it actually was the, the very recognition. I said something like that, like, no, that's not me. But in, in, her, in me, I was like, huh, I knew it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it was some, some kind of, uh, this, this is something that has to do with me. Uh, so from then on, I guess I, I work on building up my strength, so to say, even in, in being an investigator. I don't think I investigated as much as when human design came into my lab. Yeah, having all of that power, so to say, to, you know, willpower, but it's also about being so lazy because the ego is not about moving energy just for the sake of it. 
So I've learned how to manage, you know, my scene was being too lazy for stuff that I maybe I had to move and, and didn't dare to. And on the other side, learning to manage this ego and empower myself, so to say, and say, hey, this insecure one can also be strong at times and learning to to gain authority on that. Mm-hmm. It, it's been a trip. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wouldn't think of it as looking at your design as being very lazy. I would say it's uh, very fixed and specific in terms of what's going to move you or not, mm-hmm. I think is what you were kind of saying earlier. I've got a defined ego. It's my authority. And one of the things I'm kind of seeing is how, in a way, kind of harmful it can be for me to do things that I really don't want to do, mm-hmm. to force myself to have to will myself through things that I just don't want to do or I don't have to do, especially as a projector. That's kind of what's coming up for me as, as you're sharing is like you probably are pretty clear on what's going to move you and what's not going to move you. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. But when I meant place, I, I mean it more even from the outside. Like, how do they look at you? Like my father or my uh, mother. I mean, since I was little, and it's, I don't think I've pushed me through things, as I said, that I don't want to do. Like, even when I was little, my, my father would used to say, like, she has the balls, huh? The little one. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't, like, you know, push me into things that, so they would call me lazy, you know, like, you don't do this because you don't want to, because, you know. I see where where you point at and yeah, but it, there's also this laziness in the ratio of uh, how much do I put my heart into, into stuff and how much do I rest. I've always taken this rest uh, seriously, actually, because of my variable is, is you know, the whole nodal mm-hmm. uh, independent variable is right. And I've always noticed I'm a potato couch style <laughs> ego. <laughs> yeah. For me, there's something really beautiful about a relaxed generator. I think it's one of the most beautiful frequencies to be able to feel the receptivity part of this sacral being and that flow. It can feel like there's a flow to it and there's almost like a warmth and a gentleness to it at times. I like the idea of a relaxed generator. It makes me happy. (laughs) Yeah, I have this thing about me being a one thing at a time being and you know i need simple but i can get nervous easily my mother's determination was nervous so i i have this click when i don't feel secure and i go to this nervous state that destroys me mm. and so i yeah i have something to watch always there you know like the to keep uh my ass <laughs> calm and not you know run around like uh yeah like crazy because it can, you know, it can declench. There's like something, mostly when, when I get this nervousness in the air that, you know, it haunts me. Yeah. I have to really, yeah, breathe to not get pooped. I'm glad you brought that up. I was actually looking at your determination in your chart earlier and what first color, first tone. So that's appetite based consecutive. That in itself is really interesting in terms of being one of the more potentially more challenging dietary regimens to implement. So I'm curious about your experience with that. But you also mentioned the determination transference to nervous, that being the signpost or marker for when something's not right with the form or with the body. Yeah. Mechanically, it's not that the body transfers, so to say, because it's determined actually, but it, it, it gets uh, distorted by the harmony. Do you really want to know about my, because my example is a hardcore example. Sure. But I started my PHS in 2008 and it was so, 
amazing just to notice the strength, my muscularity, you could just tell. It came so natural because I actually remember myself throughout my early days, you know, I, I never wanted to add salt or sauce or whatever to my food. I, that was my war with everybody, always. I just wanted paragos or whatever, you know, I, I was always uh, so picky and, and putting things aside and so I resonated instantly. I could feel how, yeah, how empowering it was. But throughout the years, I had, <laughs> oh my God, am I going to get personal here? But okay. Well, there were a series of circumstances. I was uh, in a relationship back then uh, with a triple split. <laughs> it wasn't that fluid, you know, so to say. So in a way I followed it, but I had my fall downs, you know, like uh, I would get nervous with my couple and he wasn't uh, so much into it so he didn't help and this intermittent state did no good to my body i'm i'm one that always warns everybody with phs you know it seems like the ultimate uh, shit right now and it's it's dangerous i mean right used to say it it's dangerous for an adult and I, i'm test of this i'm alive because of you know life wanted it but i got uh, very ill from this mixing so much. I went to the hospital. I started bleeding myself from intestines. As of today, I don't have a colon and I have an ileostomy bag and I have had like this autoimmune disease, like so strong that I, I, mean, I spent one year in the hospital in coma and, and they call me the, the miracle girl in the hospital because they don't even know how, how I survived all that bleeding. And so I can tell you it works for, for one reason only. It's like it actually, my body did like started rejecting once it knows what it wants and what it needs it won't uh, accept any more mixing you know what i mean so that got a very oh. strong reaction on my body so to say and even now i brought the diet for six years i think six years and a half and then it all happened as of today i cannot go directly to one ingredient because Without colon, you, you don't assimilate exactly the same. So it's like uh, I lose so much weight to the point that I, I get weak. So right now, I still know that my diet is what it is because I still eat like many one ingredient stuff, but I also put some salt something uh, sometimes or mix like two, three uh, ingredients just to keep also my weight. But I notice I cannot go and mix stuff as before I did PHS it wouldn't work. It would send me again to the hospital. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So once you change the chemicals on your stomach, on your system, it's not so easy to go back. I mean, even I was like, you know, very determinated, but whatever life, you know, shit happens and, you know, circumstances, my own mind. I mean, I know I can speak very straightforward to people about mine because I know mine how perverted can it get and how difficult can it uh, make my existence you know and i know how it is a sane thing to to tell people to not joke with this right used to say it out loud but I, I do second that i've gone through it and i'm here but, and i recognize it works but it's not easy to implement and as you said it's probably one of the most difficult ones it's sometimes it mostly a social situation that is going to be hard. It's going to make it hard for you to keep it. And it was my, my fall downs were, were in social mostly. 
you get invited to a party, there's no one food ingredient, whatever. Even you can get so obsessed mentally. Like, <laughs> I mean, I run around with, with all of my food with me everywhere. And, and people, you know, tend to like think you're, you know, you're out of your, you're so extreme. They would used to tell me, you, you have to be very, very strong. And probably me being a one four, you know, I'm not adaptable. The thing is, I know it's, I do still eat a lot of one ingredient. It's the best thing for my system, I notice. But still, I don't dare to go there uh, so radically now because I know it has consequences. So it sounds like when you were young, you were naturally or, you know, kind of automatically wanting to eat according to your determination and eat consecutive. And because of like the social conditioning, the influences coming in around food and and all of that, that's a pretty difficult determination to, to hold to without support or understanding. What I hear you saying is that the experience that you had was that once you really started experimenting with it and dialing it in, things actually got worse when when you would fall off of it or you couldn't maintain it. And so your warning is basically don't do this unless you're really serious, you're committed to it, and you're ready to go that direction. Otherwise, it can be really hard to go back, yes. is, is basically what you're saying. The body is intelligent, and once it knows, it says, uh, don't give me the old style. It's just about uh, strategy and authority. I guess I enter into strategy and authority, and this is the outcome anyway. So who knows? Uh, what's, I mean, it's not that you enter this you know, by correctness and it all goes a rose path. Who knows? Who knows? I know I've learned a lot in the way, so to say, but yeah, if somebody can escape that, <laughs> uh, then I would say it's better to enter a very determined or, or maybe you don't have to go radical. I don't know. It depends on the, everybody, you know, everybody's different. My body is probably not so, you know, it's so fixed that uh, they can take it. I think it's a great point to make and, and from what we've heard from a lot of practitioners, that it can bring on kind of a healing crisis or a, a massive rearrangement, detox shift in the body. And like you're saying, once the body starts to move in that direction and function that way, it almost sounds like it makes not doing that even more detrimental. Mm -hmm. In my case, uh, absolutely. absolutely. I can't speak for myself, of course, but I would say it's, it makes sense. It's an intelligence, so it's, uh, it's you don't fool it afterwards, you know. Thank you for sharing your your personal experience with that. I think it's important for people to hear, you know, because it's so popular now. If there are people out there who are working with this and finding that those are the kind of things they're encountering, it's really important to get to hear direct experience about that. So thank you for sharing that. No choice. <laughs> right <laughs> <What> to do. <laughs> It relates to a general theme that Amy and I have been watching and seeing in, in our work in human design, which is once you start going down the road of deconditioning and you really start experimenting, there's often at some point along the way, there's a point of no return. Or if you go back, things are not going to be the same. Amy's got this great analogy that comes to mind, the shoes. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit different, but it's kind of a similar orientation. I think the conditioning experience puts a lot of us in a state of sort of numbness. Like there are a lot of things that then our bodies and even our minds don't feel and don't process. Then once we start to actually decondition, I think it wakes up a lot of our natural sensitivity and organic reaction to the things that we're experiencing. And 
once that starts happening, then like you're saying, we have intelligence and feeling and awareness in places that we can't deny anymore. So my analogy for it is like, if you're wearing shoes that are too tight and then your feet go numb and you, you don't notice anymore, you just walk around in these too tight shoes. But once you take them off, you can actually feel your body again and you can feel your feet on the ground. You're never going to want to put those shoes on again. Or if you do, your body's probably going to really react to it in a different way. And I always see the deconditioning process as something that creates a lot less tolerance in us Mm -hmm. for things correct. And that only increases. So it's so different than so many teachings and sort of spiritually oriented ideals about, oh, I'm going to wake up and be myself and then I'll have infinite tolerance and compassion and I'll, I'll, there's so much more I'll have capacity for, but I think it's actually kind of the opposite. Good good luck with that one. (laughs) Yeah. I had a teacher once who said the path, if you sort of take on paths like these or explorations, like, then the path grows ever narrow. I mean, a lot about this path is actually coming to grips with your incompetence. And it's the mind that it's incompetent because the body's not. But it's not about searching the light. It's about uh, assuming how much, how, how much you've been assuming and pre-assuming about your life, about others, about, I mean, is this, do you really want to get to it? You know, it's not about, oh, like, give me my human design. I'm going to just uh, fly with it in the sky. No, you're going to meet pain. Otherwise, you're, you're not going to crack the kernel. You know, it's, are you ready, you know, <laughs> to breathe through? Because it's about this, it, you know, making decisions as yourself. It's broader than one at first thinks it is. Because it's, uh, it's about fighting your own demons. It's not even just looking outside, you know. And mind is very, very powerful in there forever. And, it's, and you've been giving it uh, such weight. There was a phrase of rather I like, she said, light ain't heavy you know there's always mind related to the light realm and if you realize it's not heavy but we've been we've given it this weight no but even if you know even if you know mind shouldn't run your life whatever it's such a path that's the real path it's like stepping in your own shoes (laughs) given this metaphor along with all of this chit chat that won't let you it won't stop it's just you know, it's just there. It's just, I can experience my mind that way. I, I feel like this process has almost uncertain dynamics or certain states or hooks that my mind can get into. It's almost turned up the volume on it in some ways. So it really does, in my experience, make it feel like facing the beast that's inside you, <laughs> you know, facing the, the terror or the, uh, that part of yourself that's, um, or part of your not self <laughs> that is really intense. Part of the job, actually, to track it, to learn, to watch your mind, it, it, you know, because otherwise she's going to watch over you. So it's so mechanic, it's so predictable. It's, and that's the beauty about human design, actually. You can see where, you know, what path is it going to take over and over and over and over. And, you, and you've taken that path all throughout your life, but you keep going to that muddy place and take time to see the, the play up there to gain confidence on what your you know, feeling or senses are and 
it's it's a slow path actually to take because it's it's so boom boom now out there with human design it seems like you're you're just gonna get it because you know about it or i mean i've been walking this path 21 years it took me really young and i'm still struggling with stuff but that's the job it's just, it's just you know lifetime job it's you know either you want to to do that uh, walk or nobody's gonna do it with you uh, for you a lot is about how you go astray <laughs> whenever the mind appears and it's about humbleness if you want to i mean if you want to grow you want you want to leave your design you're gonna have to open all of those doors you don't want to look that's the real job yeah i think it's safe to say that for most of us coming into human design that it's not what we think it is the mind is going to come in and say oh human design is this it's going to give me this or it's going to make me happier I'm going to have the kind of life that I think I want. I don't think it's guaranteeing any of that, really. What it can do is it can give us a way of finding out what this life is about. We can experiment with it and we can see where it takes us. It's often probably going to be different than we think going in. I'm pretty sure like most of my students, and I mean, they don't know what they're doing there. They think they came for something. They learn along the way that, oh, this is not what I thought, but they like once they crash, they're like, okay, but it's even better than I thought. Like some, some of them uh, get the joke and some of them know, I mean, and there's this thing, like uh, a lot of people now enter into this because they want to gain their life with this telling others. And it's like, oh, oh are you out of the path, man? <laughs> uh, you know, I always warn people like this is have to transform you before that. If, if that doesn't happen, you're not going to transform shit out there. You know, like it's not the point. It's not the point. And during here, it's just about you. It's a funny business to be in. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which. What does your work with human design look like? What do you do? Is it teaching, reading? I teach all of the educational way from uh, LYD to PTL, even child development or, you know, like specialized parts of the, of the knowledge. I work a lot of, uh, with mothers too, which is my, my pleasure because it's, there's all the woo-woo, it's outside, you know, they just want their, their, their little ones to, you know, to function in this world and to, you know, so it's that, that part really takes a lot of my attention. So far, I've been well, open to this, to the Hispanic uh, world, of course. And right now we're in the middle of opening a bit uh, to the English public. As of July, I'm going to launch uh, Living Your Design. Uh, dream brave edition <laughs> it's gonna be i, I hope uh, something special because it's like two sides of the of the same coin uh so i hope it's gonna bring something empowering mm -hmm. you'll be doing that in english right can you say a little more about what this bringing in the dream rave as you see it does for lyd yeah well Actually, it came with the idea that I, I've already done like 40 plus LYDs in, in, in Spanish. And lately, it's, it's my companion, Kirke, that's doing it. So uh, it's been a while. I don't, I don't do it. You know, and it was like, okay, let's, let's get some spice here to like get me, you know, fire to go to the base. And so I even thought it was so natural, you know, that uh, Ray used to say for newcomers, Dream Brave is such piece of information, you know, it's conditioning to the max. It's conditioning that's happening when you're asleep, you don't even notice. 
I mean, we have a strategy and authority daytime, but you know, we're like so out of it <laughs> at night. And so to get some, you know, some information about that plane, which is very important for us, it's not that it's going to solve it all. <laughs> it's not that, but it's a good complement. It's a set of information that's going to be very fundamental and, and I hope useful for whoever is ready for it. I think that sounds amazing. Sounds like a really unique offering. I don't think I've heard of anybody doing that. I haven't either. Yeah. I think nobody has, because first of all, because there's so few analysts, brainwave analysts, and you know, and I do it uh, in a sense. It's not like I'm going to do a certification of brainwave or anything. I'm just going to give some fundamentals, and you know, it's it's still an NYD. It's you know, that's what's prevalent. I thought it was something new, and 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 why not? Plus, it keeps it interesting, right? Once you've taught the same course so many times <laughs> it's fun to be more creative with it and yeah it, it's kind of giving me the you know the hook to yeah let's let's start doing it again yeah yeah and like that information as you're saying can be very foundational in terms of conditioning or deconditioning i haven't spent a lot of time with the dream rave although i've gone through some of it in the ddp program and looking at like weak point analysis and and it was for me such a wake-up call or a realization to understand that my weak point is gate 38 pointing to my design son in 28 and finding out that you know it's the gate of the fighter and you know you could say a lot more about it but i had basically spent most of my life fighting in some form mm -hmm. uh, whether early in life i was fighting with schoolmates or fighting with my brother or just fighting mm -hmm. then i get into martial arts for over 20 years, go deep into various martial arts. I'm at least doing it in a more productive venue. But what was really interesting for me is that when I really started getting like deeper and more serious about my human design experiment and working with my determination, I was able to see that it was right about that time that I stopped putting as much time and energy into all that. I took a break from training in martial arts. I, I used to run a martial arts school and I closed it. How much of that is the dream wave conditioning or the weak point? It looks like a lot of it. You'd be amazed how we carry our lives. I mean, it's so potent. This <laughs> actually it's such a journey. You know, you, you end up running your life on, on that mechanism. I think it's one of undercurrents that is working there and, and you know, you don't notice, but it's as yourself, when I knew about my dream rape and all of the consequences that it has in my, in my daytime, wow, it was just a dropping also of my, of me doing some stuff. Also, I'm not going to start that story now, but there's like this uh, falling down of some stuff that uh, you actually don't need that much. Although it seemed like your whole life went into it. It was everything. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about watching once more. It's about observing stuff, how seduced you can be by a force you're not even aware of. And then how strange it can be when that shifts. Suddenly certain things that were part of your life for so long just mm -hmm. start to disappear. Mm -hmm. or... And sometimes it's even actually like how soothing can be for someone. Like you, you spoke now about the 38th gate. I had a client, he came for an analysis and he, he just cried like the whole thing through because he had a uh, fourth line aggression. He used to like bite himself in sleep, punch his partner. I mean, he had real trouble with it. You know, he, he was being self-aggressive and 
you know, it's not like you're going to change that, but knowing about that is going to lessen, especially there are factors, of course, strategy and authority, PHS, that helps a lot with Demon Realm. So it is a, of inf information that helps already. I, it's not like I'm going to do the weak point for everybody that comes, but they're going to know about that realm of human design. They're going to just make some realization for themselves or uh, throughout. It's not, it's not like you do also in an LYD analysis of a person. Uh, you give the knowledge, but I mean, it's a compliment if you want to do this kind of a specific, but you, you're going to learn a lot about, I mean, being a newcomer, having this information is just, uh, I think it can be very strong and useful. Can I ask you one last question? Sure. Given that you've had this pretty long history with human design and seeing where things are now, do you have a sense in terms of what you're seeing in how the work has developed, where things might be going in the coming years, how you see human design continuing to develop? Do you mean by professionals or, or by non-professionals? Well, both. You know, I think 20 years ago, it was a very weird, often a dark corner kind of a thing. Yes. You know, now yes. it's all over the place. So I'm just curious if someone who's been looking at this for so long, what you see. Yeah, I see a lot of deterioration on the, you know, on the main substance. Uh, it's normal. I think it's, I mean, I've seen it grow and it will grow and it, I mean, we're just gonna see this uh, distortion. It's normal. Ashra used to say, okay, you do it good, you know, do your thing, do your, you know, you'll get your fractal. And so I think people that uh, really take it for what the experiment is, I mean, it's such an individual trick. I don't think it's ever going to be like mainstream, you know, like, uh, like psychology or whatever it's, uh, but certainly it will get more known, but also with this parallel <laughs> universe of distortions. Yeah, I know. I, I just keep it real as much as I can. And I think for what I see in you too, uh, also, so it's, it's, it's about some individuals that will just keep the knowledge alive, but we're going to assist to so much uh, vulgarization, I think, because it's going to be run by mind in many planes, so to say. But, but as I said, don't look out, you know, look for yourself and, and see how, how you're fractal. Uh, extends, you know? Yeah, that's something that Alok and working with Alok through the teacher training as, as a mentor really impressed on Amy and I mm. as teachers and, and professionals to just do good work. Don't worry about, you know, a lot of promotion, putting the hard sell out or getting so into like the business end of things. Just do good work. Your fractal will be there, will, will find you. And it takes care of itself. That's how we've been operating. And yeah, I don't think I can do it any other way, honestly. It's just not, yeah, it doesn't work for me otherwise. I don't think there's a problem with marketing yourself up. And I mean, you know, it's, uh, I've been there for so long, you know, and I've always been so resistant to that. And I, I see that we're also in times where why not, you know, even Ra told me like when I, I was speaking with him and, and I was like, yeah, well, I don't, I don't publicize. I don't, I just wait for my fact. And it was like, hey, you, you're crazy. You're a Buddha in the cave. You go out there and, you know, and, and, and advertise yourself, you know, so. It's just about with theory is behind that. But yeah, it's uh, it's about keep on your experiment on your experiment and keep that for yourself. The rest just <laughs> who knows. 
<laughs> well, thank you, Amaya. It's been great to get to talk to you and hear about your experience. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you always. And yeah, thank you for making it easy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for upcoming episodes on the same channel. <laughs>